Father God, we humbly come before you today to learn from you, to be taught by you, to be led by you. Lord, transform our lives from the inside out. Fill us with your spirit, with your power, and help us to make a difference in the lives of others. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior's name we pray. Amen. Well, Dr. Smith, I'm counting on you to wake up. You see what is the last part of the session today, and actually the bulk of the session, which is questions and answers. I'm sure you will. Well, that's always the question. Am I going to have an answer? But that's why I bring Zub with me. Okay, does that sound better? You can hear me well? Uh, good morning. Uh, today on the board is what we're going to do. Does anyone recall a song that this is an allusion to? Yes! Good, good vibration. Thank you. By the, by the Beach Boys. The rest of you, you missed the 60s. Or if you were there, you forgot about it. You don't, you don't remember this song? I'm looking for good vibrations. All right. Uh, do you remember what an exhortation is? It's a spiritual vibration of effect, yes. Uh, uh, not so much... Explanation, it flows out of explanation. Uh, it has a dimension of encouragement. It does have a measure of wisdom attached to it. But, uh, 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 well, uh, it is rooted in an announcement. That's my own personal note. I, I messed you up. But it is rooted in the announcing of God's words, but it is something different than just teaching. It is a, now we're getting hot, a call to action. It is something that says, okay, given these things being true, this is what you ought to do. And you have um, a handout here today, I'm going to steal Cindy's, that kind of looks like this. This is a little cartoon. This actually represents uh, your take-home final. And I'll tell you how to take your take-home final right now. Um, here are the four big ideas of the book of Hebrews going up. And if you glance your eyes over that, you will remember. Jesus, the ultimate revelation of God. Does everyone have one of these? Uh, second big idea going up, Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice and the ultimate high priest. I put the chapters in there for you. Third idea, Jesus, the source of the ultimate covenant and new covenant, 9 through 10. And then finally, Jesus, the ultimate display of faith, 11, 1 through 12, 14. So the bulk and body of the teaching of the book going up contains those four ideas. That's his thesis, his proof, his evidence, his teaching. Uh, <clears throat> in theological terms, we call this orthodoxy, straight belief, correct belief, apostolic teaching right to the bone. Then what's unique about this letter is there are seven exhortations that uh, flow out of and are rooted in the orthodoxical teaching. And we call that, uh, not what do we call orthodoxy, and then we call ortho orthopraxis. Yes, and praxis means to practice, to, 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 to you know, do something, to live it out. So an exhortation is when somebody takes a doctrinal truth and then says, given that being true, here is what I encourage you to do. Or, sometimes in the book of Hebrews, this is what I am warning you 
not to do because this is going to happen if you do that. This will happen if you do this. So seven times uh, he weaves these exhortations in. So here's your final. Down here on the bottom, number one on the right-hand side is exhortation number one. So what you have to do is look that text up and find out what the exhortation is and then write in the answer. Now, if you get really stuck, you have actually the answers on the sheet that I gave you last time. But don't look at those. No, God will show you. And then if you do this, what will happen is you go from exhortation one, then to two, then to three, then to four, then to five, six, seven. And what you'll see then is the exhortations help you understand the meaning and significance of the doctrinal teaching that's been put out at the heart of this book. So um, the take-home final will be when you choose to take it, and then um, I will meet anyone at Starbucks or Mugswigs if you want it graded. <laughs> yes. I want you I want you to hear I want to hear your summary. It's simply the better way. All the way through Hebrews, the better way. Uh, it, it's a Jewish uh, priest or a converted preaching to the Jews, teaching them of the better way. Of the better way. And that's the summary of the whole book. I, the I, way. I you know what? If you would have come here and done this earlier, we could have uh, moved on to another book of the Bible. <laughs> Pardon me. That's okay. Um, So, having said that, um, I now want to uh, tell you what we're going to do today. Uh, Zev is going to give a teaching now on, uh, I put plural, but he's actually going to do one, one of the central ones in the book that really touched his heart. And actually, it's probably the one that causes the most controversy and discussion in the whole book of Hebrews. In fact, to such a point that sometimes the book of Hebrews becomes a football, theological football, kicked around this particular exhortation. So Zev will help you understand what it is in context. Then I want to just review this little short literary structure of Hebrews. The rest of the time will be on questions and answers. Well, at least questions. (laughs) On anything in the book, there is no such thing as a dumb question so let it fly, and we, I hope we have at least 30 minutes to do that. So having said all of that, I now have my cheat note announcement. Jack is going to say something. Yeah, Jack Milligan is uh, 87. <laughs> I think in 87 years, this experience, the last five, four weeks and today, is an example of the best teaching I have ever, ever heard. And it is the best both in content and in style and in passion. And we are so grateful that as Logos that John and Zev have have done this. We want to thank Christ Presbyterian Church for providing this beautiful facility, which we have enjoyed uh, each of these weeks. I hope you are enjoying the podcasts. If you're not going back to them, you're missing what I'm getting when I'm driving my car and listening again uh, to these lessons. 
The second time you listen to them, you can almost see the people speaking to you. Even John smiling. Or when he does one of those, <laughs> But uh, the podcasts are great. And on the board, you can go to cantoncpc.org and you go to Westminster class and all of the classes plus all of the handouts are available on that website. And download it to your iPhone and play it on your in your car or whatever. It is, it is wonderful. Now, the problem of all of this is we've been provided all this by Christ Presbyterian Church, but that doesn't put any bread on the table for John or Zeb. And so we're handing out envelopes today to give you an opportunity. Take them home, pray about it, contemplate how this class has impacted you. Put your check in that envelope, and you're going to have to put your own stamp on and, and mail it to me, and it will be deposited in the Logos account. And know that every penny you put in there will go to the two of them. Logos will get none of it. So I hope you share with me the great enthusiasm that we have really gained a great day from these experiences. And you will please pass them out. Thank you. There's one other thing I say. If if you have a venue that would profit from this program, one of our goals I think is to move it on, and they are going to be doing a program now at another church after this. But this program is so good that you may have a group that you have that you'd like to encourage them to come. Let me know about it. We'll contact them. We're not supposed to make comparisons. Is anybody watching? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for leading the band. <laughs> Good. That was going to be my question. Is am I Howard Cosell or Dandy Don Meredith? <laughs> <clears throat> well, that's a pretty hard thing to follow. It reminds me of the time when I actually went on a Zen retreat at Zen Mountain Monastery with the uh, abbot, and the, uh, the, whose abbot is John Dido Luri Roshi, who is a published author many times over. One of the privileges of being on the retreat was that one was enabled to participate in what in the Japanese tradition is called dokusan, where you are uh, invited into the presence of the abbot to ask a question. And we were told to formulate our question carefully and not to waste the abbot's time. And so I had my question carefully formulated, and I went in and bowed and sat down and said, how do I practice being nobody in particular, to which he immediately replied, don't believe your own press releases. <laughs> so I'll try not to believe that. Okay. I really wanted to tackle this particular exhortation because it's one that really kind of stared me in the face and scared me down. And as a way of getting into it, I wanted to share a little bit more of my story and then that will explain why this particular exhortation creates a problem some, for some people. 
First of all, my original conversion to Christianity, I have to say, was at once mundane and dramatic, sort of very ordinary, but also had components like Paul on the road to Damascus. Uh, I know God's Spirit was working in my life. I know that now. Uh, It had three dimensions, significant relationships, reflective reading, but also some very powerful experiences, latter mainly in the form of dreams. And the crescendo of these experiences came in a dream of the kind that analytical psychologists like to call a big dream. It was complex and powerful, full of symbolic imagery, some of which involved a parting from Judaism. The climax of the dream came with what I can only describe as an ecstatic vision that took place inside the sun. And uh, what happened there, there were four faces bound together by a wheel and a cross of fire. Everything was fire and light and a feeling of ecstasy that absolutely ruptured my heart. Never before nor since have I experienced anything even close to this. And when this brief vision ended, a voice in the dream declared its meaning to me, the Holy Trinity plus one who does their will. I understood this to mean nothing less than God's invitation to me to share in the life of the Trinity. And as a fitting coda to these experiences in yet another dream, I knelt in the midst of a circle of elder women who laid hands on my head. Then one of the women behind me said, he needs baptism, not punishment. He needs baptism, not punishment. And I took this to be a command, and with all that had gone before, I no longer hesitated. So on Sunday, August 6, 1978, Feast of the Transfiguration of Our Lord, I was baptized as all of me with all of my names as Zeb William David Rosenberg, and that's how I sealed and um, test, you know, my uh, own conversion to Christianity. Now, in spite of all this, in spite of all this, some years ago, I renounced holy orders and left the Episcopal Church to re-explore my Jewish heritage and to re-immerse myself in it. Again, what is the letter to the Hebrews written to these Jewish Christians to try to keep them from doing? Backslide, go returning to Judaism. Well, guess what? I did it. I did it. Okay? Now, my, you know, my Christian faith and the ardor of my original conversion had been sapped a bit by the stress and burnout of a challenging ordained ministry. It is a very challenging vocation. And having entered the ordination process shortly after my conversion, my original calling to become a Christian and my calling to become a priest had become somewhat conflated. And also the echo of the voices and the dreams I dreamed that led me to the baptismal font had grown very dim indeed. I believed at the time I was being led to come home and that home was the Jewish community. I became an active member of Temple Israel in Canton. I served there by teaching being active in worship, sometimes in worship leadership. I've since experienced, thanks be to God, a complete renewal of my Christian faith. Now, what was involved in that, for one thing, I never could integrate my original experience of conversion to Christianity into my Jewish life, even by the most contorted midrash I could come up with. For another thing, I discovered that there's a vast difference between departing and turning away from a faith, especially one so long and deeply held, 
and merely repressing it. Please hold on to that distinction. I thought I'd done the former. I came to discern I'd only done the latter. This came home to me one evening when I viewed the film Mysteries of the Jesus Prayer by John McGuckin and Norris Chumley on PBS. The Jesus Prayer is very simple. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Repeated over and over. It can be also the longer form. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, It had been a mainstay of my spiritual life as a Christian, and viewing this beautiful film just brought the prayer straight back from my heart to my lips as if I'd never stopped saying it. But most importantly, I came to realize, and this really relates very much to what we talked about last week about the real humanity of Jesus, I deeply needed a God with a real human face and a real human heart. I needed a God who had identified with and entered into the human experience in all of its pain, suffering, and brokenness. And I could only find that in Jesus Christ. And that's why there's so much importance to me in the letter to the Hebrews about all of that emphasis on Jesus' learned obedience through what he suffered. He was made like us in every way except sin. So that in every way his humanity is just as real as is ours. What I seek is what I glimpsed, however, briefly by that vision in the sun I had in my dream of 1978, the Holy Trinity plus one who does their will. And to realize that is my ultimate aim in life. To get there, I need one who is both fully divine and fully human, who is truly God and yet truly one with our suffering and broken human condition. And to me, a man who has sinned repeatedly, that means the God-man Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, communion with him, I living in him, he living in me, in my heart, is what I, Zev Rosenberg, truly and deeply need. Nothing else even comes close to satisfying that hunger and thirst. Now, the reason why I wanted to preface dealing with this exhortation is that when I was in the process of coming back, since Hebrews had been an important part of my conversion to Christianity in the first place, when I got to the exhortation in Hebrews 6, warning against apostasy, it brought me up a little short. What we're talking about is Hebrews 6, 4 through 12. Hebrews 6, Four through twelve. What I'd like now is to ask someone, if they would please, to read this. Do we have a volunteer to read Hebrews six four through twelve? You must really be t- close to God today. I just, I just love to read. You do it well. Thank you. Hebrews 6, 4 through 12. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come if they then commit apostasy. Since they crucify the Son of God on their own account and hold him up to contempt... For land which has drunk the rain that often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake is cultivated 
receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. Though we speak thus, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love which you showed for his sake in serving his saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness in realizing the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. All right. Now, given what I basically told you about my journey, you can see why looking at this, I was suddenly brought up very short. Because I felt that this was describing me. Very much so. So, how do we understand this? Because it's not just people with my story and my background who have faced this issue, because the fact of the matter is that I don't care what your background is, I don't care you know, what your story is, and we all have a story, we all have those times in life when faith goes dim. When we feel that everything that we had hitherto believed is just not making sense anymore, and we fall away, or we feel that we have fallen away. And a passage like this is one that can stare us in the face and drive us to think, okay, I guess there's no coming back for me. There's no way to return. And that is really where the controversy down through the ages has come in terms of uh, can a lapsed Christian come back to the faith and should they be welcomed back in? This was really a problem in the third century in North Africa and uh, the difficulty was addressed by St. Cyprian of Carthage because that was the big debate is could lapsed Christians be let back into the church? And finally, the answer was yes, but this was one of the texts that was the subject of the debate because according to some, people who had lapsed under persecution, offered incense to the emperor, had renounced Christ publicly, that according to what this seems to be saying is, they're out, they had their chance, can't let them back in. But Cyprian of Carthage in particular said yes. So I want to say, first of all, we need to look at the people that um, Apollos, if, uh, you know, assuming he is the author, uh, has in mind when he said those who are, you, can't, you know, it's impossible to restore them to forgiveness. What are the characteristics of these people? And there are five Five characteristics. Anybody want to name one? Enlightened. Okay. Okay, that's, that's not one of the characteristics about their past life. That's what I'm really looking for now. Hold on to that thought. Tasted the heavenly gift. Others, excuse me, shared in the Holy Spirit. 
tasted the goodness of the Word of God. So far, you're getting them in order. <laughs> yes! Now, what I really want you to do is take a look at these five characteristics. These are the ones that really make the difference in terms of what their experience are. First of all, what does it mean in this context to be enlightened? I mean, we're not talking about Buddhists here. Informed. Any other? Yes? You've been confronted with the light of the world. Okay? All of that is very germane to the point. Because what we're talking about is they've been instructed in the teaching of the gospel and understand it. And in fact, understand it spiritually. Who is primarily responsible for instructing us in the teaching of the gospel? The Holy Spirit. Thank you. Now, what's the heavenly gift that they have tasted? What's the heavenly gift? Well, not salvation. What is the gift of God? Not really. What we're talking about here is, you were on the right track before, the Holy Spirit. Ah, remember what happened at Pentecost. We just talked about it last week. We had the lesson of the first Pentecost. He has poured out this that you have seen and heard. Okay, they have tasted in the holy in the heavenly gift. They've ex- had some experience of the gift of the Spirit. Shared in the Holy Spirit. Now, what does sharing in the Holy Spirit mean? Here it's a little bit difficult to get that. They had benefited in some manner from the Holy Spirit's work. Maybe they had had a healing. Um, They had experienced some deliverance in their lives. So they had seen some of the work of the Holy Spirit. They had tasted the goodness of the Word of God. How how does, you know, what does the Word of God also call, you know, Jesus, okay. Taste and see that the Lord is good. What does it mean to see that something is good? Okay, but, you know, in other words, I'm thinking of a little bit, you know, suppose I say, hey, you know, these are good. These cinnamon rolls, see, I've almost finished mine. It tastes good. It's probably good for you, although that isn't, I'm sure. Okay. Good for growth, nurturing. Okay. And finally, tasted the powers of the coming age. What is the principal power of the coming age? We're on. What? But what's the principal power of the coming age that distinguishes it? What? The coming age here is what we're experiencing now. How about the Holy Spirit? The key thing to keep in mind about all these things that the author to Hebrews is talking about is every single one of them has to do with the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Every single one of them has to do with the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, these people that he is talking about and trying to warn his audience not to imitate, what was their relationship to the work of the Spirit? How had they experienced it? 
What's the word that he's using here for what they have done? Tasted, tasted, tasted. They've tasted it. What does it mean to taste something? Well, ah! Anybody ever here been to a wine tasting? (laughs) Okay. That's what you're supposed to do. If you're going to a wine tasting and you've got a whole lot of wines, you can't afford to drink a whole glass of the first and then a whole glass of the second and a whole glass of the third. You wouldn't be able to taste anything by the time you got to the 10th or 12th. You have to spit it out. They had tasted of the Holy Spirit. They hadn't taken it in. They hadn't swallowed. They hadn't digested. These are people who have had a spiritual experience. Now, how many of you people remember the parable of the sower? The sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside. The birds came and devoured it. And then some seed fell on rocky ground. Immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. It quickly withered away. That's what these people are. They have no root. They receive the gospel gladly. They have this experience. Maybe they've been to a revival. They made the trip down the sawdust trail. They filled out a card. They say they made a decision. Okay, they had a taste of the Holy Spirit. Did it take? No. These are all gifts of the Holy Spirit. What is lacking here? Really eating and digesting. Really eating and digesting. What else is lacking here? Huh? So the Holy Spirit themselves? Okay, I'm thinking of something even more fundamental. It's what we talked about last week. What do these people lack? Conviction, uh, you're close. Commitment, you're close. What do conviction and commitment grow out of? Faith, thank you. They have no faith. These are not people of genuine faith. Okay, how do we really receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, it is in faith. Why? Because faith itself is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay? And finally, how does God, how does, how does he further, what is further missing? This comes in his uh, talk uh, to the people he's writing to of the better things he hopes for. What have they shown? What have they shown, he says, when we said we hope for better things? What have they shown? What goes along with faith? Works, what kind of works in particular? That's all very good. I'm looking for another one-syllable word. Love, thank you. Love for God and love for the saints that grows out of a lively faith. These people weren't talking about that. Now, what's the nature of of the apostasy? The nature of the apostasy was not just a total renunciation of all the principles and teachings of the gospel but a total denunciation of those principles. Yeah? Don't you think God would look at it the ones that just stopped going to church and slipped away a little while? Very much different than the publicly denouncing. Yeah, that's exactly one of the main things. But in particular, what I want you to do is take a look at Matthew 12, 
22 to 32. This is another thing that was written for Jewish Christians. Would someone else like to read Matthew 12, 22 to 32? There's no hard words in this one. Okay, I'll read it. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. All the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But then the Pharisees heard it, and they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Okay? This is what we are calling the sin against the Holy Spirit. Because what were they saying about the work of the Spirit that Jesus was showing? It's demonic. In other words, these are people who have tasted of the Spirit, who have tasted the work of the Spirit, who have tasted the gospel, who have seen it, and now have turned so far against it that they are denouncing it as demonic. Okay. Now, I can assure you, I don't think anybody in this room has ever committed the sin against the Holy Spirit. You wouldn't be here if you had. Okay. And I always tell people, if you're worried about that, then you haven't committed the sin against the Holy Spirit, because if you really had, then you wouldn't be worried about it. Because you would be so far gone in evil that you would be unable to be worried about whether or not you'd committed it. Now, why is all this important in this exhortation? We need to take a look at the people that he had better things expected of. First of all, what do they have that gives the writer expectations of better things of them? Things that accompany salvation. That's what's missing from the people before. Things that accompany salvation. What are the things that accompany salvation? Peace, joy, hope, faith. Thank you. Now we need to go back to your Presbyterian roots. (laughs) Take a look at Romans 8. Okay. And in particular, we're looking at Romans 8, 28 to 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We're talking about the whole, what is called in Reformed theology, the golden chain. 
Okay? Effectual calling, faith and repentance, justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification. Those are the things that accompany salvation. Okay? And if you've experienced those things in your life, don't worry about any lapses that you've had in the meantime. They're not final. And they're grounded in God's faithfulness to the new covenant promises. Because even if we cannot remain faithful, God is always faithful. And that's why I like to say, sort of the last word in this, in the words of a hymn that I once fell in love with, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee, I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. I hope that lays to rest any fears that you may have when you read that exhortation that over any lapses that you've had that, you know, somehow or other it's too late to repent. It is never too late to repent. Yes? I'm really struggling with, I'm really struggling with that. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Christ is talking about himself. If he would, does that mean he'll forgive them if they speak against him? Or does that mean God will forgive them? What, where's the deal there? Okay. That bugs me. How can Christ not be as important as the Holy Spirit? Ah, because what were they saying about Christ's work? They were saying that he was casting out demons by the prince of demons. Okay. By whom was he casting them out? By the Holy Spirit. When you start talking about God as if God is a demonic force, it's not that no one will forgive you. It's that you have placed yourself beyond the possibility of even needing or uh, of even wanting it. Can I jump in? Yeah. Uh, if you write down John 16, 5 through 15, I'll draw you a little cartoon here. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit's role is to do three things. Persuade people of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment to come. So when the Holy Spirit begins to illuminate a person, what, they, what he does is help them to understand they are in sin and they need a Savior. That they don't have sufficient righteousness to meet God's standards and they need some righteousness and that if they don't get that righteousness they'll have to face the evaluation or judgment of God on their own terms. So what the Holy Spirit does is say to people as uh, the Holy Spirit's persuading them, uh, here's your sin and here's your solution Jesus who died for you here's your situation, you have no righteousness, here's your solution Jesus has the righteousness of God uh, here's your situation. If you don't get the righteousness of God to cover over your sins and take them away, then you'll have to go and be with Satan and receive the judgment that Satan's going to have. And the Holy Spirit does that in so many different ways until the Holy Spirit brings a person right to this point 
Now, this is what happened to the Pharisees. They got brought to that point, and the Holy Spirit was telling them, you need Jesus. And so they had two hypotheses that they could follow, one or two. One, he really is the Lord, as the Holy Spirit is telling me. Or B, well, I've got to fudge up some other explanation for all the stuff that he's done. And they go all the way to the other side. They say, well, he does it by uh, demonic power. So when they said that, they're now calling the Holy Spirit's witness a demonic lie. So it's not that God can't forgive them. It's that if you call the only solution that God provides for you a lie, you're obviously then not going to believe it. And so therefore, it winds up to be tantamount to rejecting Christ, which is what Zev was talking about. This is not just a lapse of faith. This is a renunciation and a denunciation of the possibility that the testimony of the Spirit is the truth. So that's a great question that you ask because we don't want to ever forget that the Holy Spirit and Jesus and the Father share equally in deity. So the apparent hierarchical thing there isn't really a hierarchy. Okay? Did everyone get that? He, the like time frame, time frame, he wants your exact chronology. How many he days were you in sin? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thank God it wasn't 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, basically, my original conversion to Christianity took place in 1978. When I left the priesthood and returned to Judaism, it was 2004. And it was about um, two years ago, 2013, that I knew I had to return to Christianity. So I spent about nine years fighting, if you will, because, like I said, I think that the thing that it really I had to keep coming back to is the fact that I hadn't really renounced Christianity. I just repressed it. I just repressed it. It was there all the time. It was there all the time. I was just fighting it. And what Presbyterian doctrine, what staple of Presbyterian thought does his life illustrate? Ah, I warm, but uh, starts with a P. Uh, the other P. <laughs> oh my God, you people don't know your tulip. <laughs> What's the final P? Total depravity, unlimited, uh, unconditional grace, limited atonement. Ooh, it's a good thing your pastor isn't here at the moment. Perseverance. No, no, I, I want the eye. I forgot it. I'm not a Presbyterian. Uh, the eye? Yeah. Irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. P, perseverance of the saints. What does that mean? To persevere means when you start... You keep going. Now, that's how Calvin and the Reformers worked it out. How do you know who a true Christian is? They keep going. Now, implied in that is you can fall. You can lay in the mud. You can look like you're gone. You're out of it. But the Reformers said, inevitably, if you really are uh, truly regenerated truly have the spirit in you no matter what you will always get back up and do what keep on keeping you on. will persevere that's the only sign 
Calvin said, of how you can determine. Because when we're all walking together at any point in life, we're all together and we all make the assumption, well, then, yes, we will continue on. But we have always had friends, loved ones that do what? They fall. They temporarily fall. But if they are really regenerate, it'll be a temporary fall. If they fall and don't get up and don't come ever, then you know what? They weren't in the first place truly believers because true believers always get up and go forward. So that helps us immensely on just a pure psychological level because that means that no matter how, when I see myself in the ditch or anybody else, I don't have to despair because I can count on what? If, If they really are a believer... God's grace will help them get up eventually. I may have to help them, or they may have to help me, but the true believers will eventually get up and go yeah. forward again. Yes, sir? Your little diagram there, one and two. Yes. Demonic, just talking about right. Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. John talks about those who believe will have everlasting life. Yes, however, no, you're not making a bad correlation. It, it, the whole New Testament is, it, as it were, it's almost like a legal brief. The book of Hebrews is like a legal brief. It's written to drive you to a conclusion. It's got exhortations to help you to understand the importance of this. But eventually, each one of us has to decide what? Whether well, am I going to say yes to Jesus or am I going to say no to Jesus? And when the Pharisees got to that place where they had to make a decision, the, it was, uh, they could, you know, wow, we're going to confess this guy is the Messiah? What's our other option? And they could have gone to a moderated view and said something like, um, uh, Gamaliel said. <laughs> well, if you better not mess God. with these people. We don't know yet whether they're of God or not. But we'll find out because we'll just let it run its course and then eventually we'll see. But they, they could have taken that option. We don't know about Jesus yet. There actually were some Jews leaders that did do that. Certainly Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea. They didn't write him off. But these particular group of people in Matthew 12, they went to the complete opposite hypotheses. We can't confess him as Lord. We won't confess him as Lord. So the only other explanation for how he can do the things that he does is... It must be demonic Demonic. power. Wow. In doing that, they then were in effect saying to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's testimony about Jesus, you're lying. And that's when you blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Okay. I just want to add another thing. A couple of other things. Um, But, you know, another P besides perseverance of the saints that is sometimes used by a lot of Reformed theologians is preservation of the saints because it's not a matter of my efforts to keep going it's the fact that god has made promises god has made promises under the new covenant and having come into covenant with god god will be faithful to those promises it's not that i pick myself up and keep going it's god picks me up god picks me up that's why i ended with oh love that will not let me go that's the love that got me back into the church a love that will not let me go okay who's got other questions i lost my mic that's okay i don't 
Yeah. Hold on, we got one right here. Sorry. How much did your return to Judaism have to do with difficulties you had with Christianity? Uh, a lot. Um, because essentially, like I said, the, my sense of my vocation to the priesthood and my sense of my vocation to be a Christian had become pretty well conflated. Uh, I was ordained in a very charismatic diocese, and I became quickly Exhibit A for the Holy Spirit. And it got to be very uncomfortable. And uh, I think that also there's another thing, and this is something that basically is a danger for clergy in particular, is that when you begin to love your ministry more than you love God, it becomes an idol. And then when you experience stress and burnout, um, it's very easy to think that you're losing your faith. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it did have a lot to do with it. Now, I was not facing persecution. My family was certainly not happy about my conversion to Christianity. But unlike the people that Apollos is writing to, I was not facing persecution. But... Um, the lure of the past is very strong. And I think that that's the other side of the coin of what the letter to the Hebrews is, is dealing with here. Is that these were people who had come. Uh, I remember when uh, the book I Am Jewish uh, was published. It was a series of essays by Jews around the world in tribute to Daniel Pearl, who was the journalist who was executed in Karachi by Islamist extremists. And his last words are, I am Jewish. And so they wanted people to sort of talk about what it meant to them. And Rabbi Spitzer did a whole sermon on this. Um, and he basically read a couple of the essays. And then he challenged people to sort of come up with their own answer to what, you know, how does the phrase, I am Jewish, how does that, you know. And what struck me is, I have a goodly heritage. And it's a goodly heritage. It's rich. It is really rich. It's beautiful. It's got lots of great things in it. But there's one thing, there's a lot of difference between, you know, it's sort of like I say, my roots are in Judaism. But the last time I looked at a tree, the direction of growth was not towards the roots. All right, Jim, uh, or I'm sorry, Jim Knight has a question. Okay. Wow. Yeah, I've got a question here on uh, the text. Um, the NIV uh, reading of this is basically it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift who have shared in the Holy Spirit uh, if they go away from that to be brought back to repentance that seems to me to be sort of paradoxical to what we see like in first Peter first John first Corinthians when they talk about new Christians baby Christians worldly Christians you're interpreting taste to be as you mentioned not completely enveloped mm -hmm. in the faith you know, I, I think you could read that different ways. I mean, to me, you know, if you taste uh, a, a rich living, a, a wealthy living, as opposed to an impoverished living, yeah, you don't want to go back to that. So, I mean, where are you getting your thoughts on why taste just means just a peripheral understanding of the Lord as opposed to, you know, a deep um, relationship with him? Where do you get that? Okay. Um, first of all, just the fact that the word taste is used there instead of eat. Okay, because where in John, you know, John says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have life within you. We're not just talking about tasting. We're talking about eating. We're talking about digesting. 
Um, this is not original with me, by the way. I looked up uh, a nice little excerpted version that I have of a commentary on Hebrews by John Owen, the great Puritan commentator. His original commentary on Hebrews, just that one letter, ran to seven volumes. I did not consult the original in all of it. But basically, that's the... Because, again, what are you seeing is not said about these people. What's not said about them is that they have the things that accompany salvation. Okay? And that's a crucial difference. So, in other words, he's basically saying that you have to progress towards sanctification. Otherwise, you're not going to be... It's not just that. He doesn't mention anything about those things that accompany salvation. He's not talking about, he does not describe them as having faith. He does not describe them as having, um, you know, a re- genuine repentance. I see that as being kind of implicit in this based on what you just said. You know, because on, in, one portion of the, in one portion of the Bible, we're talking mm-hmm. about people can be Christian, uh, still be worldly, working towards progressive sanctification, and then in this part right here, it seems to again state that once you've tasted it, however you want to define that, that if you, you know, kind of withdraw or backslide a bit, that uh, the, the word says that you will not be brought back to repentance. Okay, again, he's not just talking about a little bit of backsliding. He's talking about total apostasy. They have crucified again Christ again. These are people who not only renounce Christianity, they denounce it. Okay, so we're not just talking about a little backsliding here by immature Christians. And uh, unfortunately, we've run out of time. And when you say, okay, we'll have one more, but I need to give him an answer too. Now, deeper in the book, there's an analogy in the first part of Hebrews about the people that heard the words of God on the way out of Egypt, out of slavery, and they were brought to the corner of a promised land, to the place called Kadesh Barnea. And they had to make a decision. And what was that decision? Were they going to enter into the promised land? Do you all recall this? Or were they not? And now if you look at the last couple of verses of Hebrews 3, you'll see what the author of Hebrews says. The reason that they didn't enter in, does anyone remember, is because they had no faith. Now watch the analogy. Moses went through God's power and took all these people out of slavery, and they tasted along the way all of the signs and evidences of God's power. They tasted the manna, they tasted the water, they are on this journey. But when they got right up to the edge, what did they say? We're not going in. Well, some said they want to go in, and some said we can't go in. So that generation, what happened to them? They wandered around in the wilderness. I'm not saying they were eternally lost, but the analogy is that when you're being brought along like these Jewish people were, he's making an analogy to Israel's past. You've been brought to the Kadesh Barnea of your spiritual life, and that is what? What are you going to do with Jesus? And so how do we know those people who are really, who have the faith, what did they do? They go in. And how do we know people that don't have faith? They stay out. So it's not that they had faith, lost it, and therefore can't return. 
the author of Hebrews says, they never had faith in the first place. They came out, but they didn't go in. And that's what these people are bordering on doing. They've come out, they've tasted, they've had some experiences, but now they're, fall, they're falling back. And his point is, we'll know which class you belong to. Because those who really do have faith, what do they do? They go in. And those who never had faith in the first place, they stay out. They don't go. Uh, okay, so quick. We, does he? <laughs> <laughs> well, then we'll, I'll go home today and listen to it. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I, all right, I know. Go ahead. Yeah, that's actually... Um, one of the great experiences of my spouse's career in seminary was when she uh, had the Reverend Jim Forbes come to uh, Yale Divinity School to give the Beecher, Lyman Beecher lectures in preaching, and he talked about the Holy Spirit in preaching, and he contrasted the, uh, the state of the uh, depiction of Pentecost and Acts this mighty rushing wind like a hurricane that filled the house and tongues of fire. And it, with, in the Gospel of John, what does Jesus do? He just says, peace be with you, and then he breathed on them. <sighs> Receive the Holy Spirit. He said, some can just go with a gentle visitation. Some of us are more dense. Okay? We need harder tools. I've got a very hard head. I'm 6'5". All the people with tall genes and thin skull genes have already been killed off. Okay, so my skull is very thick. It takes a heavy hammer to get through. Yeah. Okay. Everybody is different. The spirit works on each person in a very individual manner. I'm going to ask Zev now to read the benediction from the book of Hebrews, chapter 16, 20 through 21 you want to follow along. It's one of the most beautiful passages in the entire New Testament and a great place for us to say goodbye for a while. Okay? So God bless you. Thank you for coming. Now may the God of peace who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, make you complete in everything good so that you may do his will, working among us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.